campsite media. Hello? What is the, what do you want what me to say? What is going on here? Like, oh, it's why? just, um, Chameleon. Chameleon. Okay. You're listening to Chameleon. A production of Campside Media. Oh. <laughs> Have you ever had a dream inside of a dream? It's a really bizarre phenomenon, but if it's ever happened to you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're fast asleep, lost in some totally bizarre dream, and then you wake up and think, whoa, that was a weird one. And you turn over and go back to sleep, only to realize you're not in your bed. You're in a sleeping bag, in a tent at the summer camp you went to when you were 13. And there's a giraffe outside. And then you realize, oh shit, I'm still asleep. This is a dream too. If this has never happened to you, I probably sound like an insane person. But a year of living inside the rabbit hole of the Con Queen scam had begun to make us feel exactly this way. Completely upside down. Unsure of what was true and what wasn't. Yeah, I very much agree with that assessment. This is just such a disturbing con. Let's recap for one second. This creep is pretending to be a woman and then sexually harassing men who he usually lures halfway around the world just to crush their dreams. I mean, all we wanted to do was solve this thing already. Let's get justice for people like Kevin from last week. And now, just as we were chasing down actors who'd been cast in fake movies, the con queen had shifted tactics again. Now he was going after chefs for fake parties. Also in Jakarta, of course. Here's Nicole. The setup was, you know, essentially high net worth individuals were looking to host a dinner party in Indonesia. And so it was definitely a new twist on what the scam had looked like before. We talked to a chef from New Zealand named Jason Roberts. He works in Australia now, but he got a job offer from Christy Ong too, the billionaire from Singapore who'd baited Joe Scarnici. He's the photographer you heard again last week. And Jason was all set to head to Jakarta. His bags were packed, his passport was in his pocket, he was minutes away from getting into a car for the airport when his accountant forwarded him a story from a magazine. It was all about the con queen. It's verbatim, everything that I've just gone through with these people. Fortunately for Jason, he'd opted to get the travel insurance when he bought his plane tickets, just in case. I got insurance because my biggest fear was, because I didn't really know, I was like, shit, what if this is a scam? What if they're going to take my kidneys? What if they're going to plant drugs on me because there's two large amounts of money going into my bank account? Because if I was to come back through the border, had drugs, and go, oh, this looks suspicious. I have a contract, but I've never met the people. You really did think that thing about the kidneys or the drugs? I honestly did. Yeah, there was something in the back of mind that just didn't sit right. I was, I was hoping that it was real, but something didn't fit quite right. So Jason dodged a bullet, but he told me about some other chefs. And the next one we found, he'd swallowed the hook and was really struggling to deal with the aftermath. He'd done a lot of thinking and had come up with a hypothesis that sure seemed intriguing. The scam itself is not a real story. Like, I think it's a red herring. It's a diversion. It's, it's disinformation. Okay, sure. You have our attention. Let's see where this one goes. This is Chameleon, the story of the Hollywood con queen. I'm Josh Dean. Chapter 7, Ghosted. So the con queen was shifting tactics. I don't mean that he was asking people to be drug mules or stealing kidneys or any of that. It was always mindfuckery and small amounts of money. 
But now he had started to target chefs for a big fake party in Jakarta. And actually, it was the first time we caught up to the scam in progress. These events were playing out just weeks before we heard about them. Maybe, just maybe, being closer to the crime would unlock new clues. Which is why I was so excited to talk to this other chef, the one with the theories. I hoped he would lead us towards some answers. This guy's pretty well known. He's run restaurants and published books. So he didn't want us to use his name. We're going to call him Brian. In fact, this isn't even his voice. We asked an actor to recreate our interview in order to protect his identity. When I first emailed Brian, I used mutual acquaintances as a kind of common ground to assure him I was legit, forgetting that this was a trick the con queen often used. So Brian was suspicious of me from the start. When he finally agreed to talk, he insisted that we use Signal, an app kind of like WhatsApp. It's popular with journalists because it uses serious encryption. Were you already paranoid, or is this just me? No, you no, paranoid? no. I'm not a paranoid person at all. I think there's a possibility that there's something that's much, much bigger than any of us really understand. Okay. Like extraordinarily big and dangerous. Really? Yeah. I do not think this is the scam as the scam was being portrayed. Okay. So I, I basically... I like, mean, I've heard a bunch of versions of it at this point, of the scam, and I've met people who've been over there and stuff. So I've yet to have an alternate theory for it. And I mean, I'd love to hear what you think. Brian looked up the private security company mentioned in a news story about the scam, K2 Intelligence. Then he emailed the investigator mentioned by name. That was Nicole. And she immediately, within like zero, like a minute, emails me back and says, can I speak with you on the phone? So I give her my number and she says, I'll be calling you with a number from Hackensack, New Jersey. And I said, okay. But Brian couldn't bring himself to trust Nicole. She seems to know a little bit more about me than I feel like I was telling her. Like she's able to fill in a lot of blanks. And I, I have a, a sort of weird feeling about it. Being a victim had left him in a dark place. And talking to Nicole definitely didn't seem to help. You know, part of me just feels so gross. Like I feel totally violated. Uh, you know, I'm still trying to wrap my head around why anyone would ever fucking do this to someone. It's, it's like a terrible thing to do to somebody, to manipulate them. And it just reminded me of like that Korean movie, Old Boy, where the guy's in prison for 35 years and he has no idea why. When Brian told Nicole that he'd been hired by someone pretending to be Christina Ong, Nicole said that she'd actually been trying to contact Christina Ong, the real one. And she wondered if he could help. This bugged Brian. Was his investigator using him to recruit clients? Soon after that, Brian was on the phone with Jason, the other chef from New Zealand. Jason had also been hired by a fake Christina, and he told Brian about something odd that happened just after that first contact. His Instagram had been hacked, and the hack had originated in Hackensack, New Jersey. This set off alarm bells for Brian. It was literally a Kobayashi moment in The Usual Suspects where he said Hackensack, and then I remembered the phone number was a Hackensack number with not Nicoletta's name, but a different name on the caller ID. And something about her demeanor, which was pushy and wanting information, seemed very similar to the way that Christina Ong was pushy to me. And also, as I said, she was kind of, kind of cavalier and telling me a lot about the story. And her name was different on the phone. As in, the caller ID showed a different last name than the one Nicole, whose real first name is Nicoletta, was using. Brian interpreted this as something fishy, but in truth, it's her husband's last name. 
Nicoletta, as Brian knows her, uses her maiden name at work. Either way, he was spiraling. This just feels strange to me. You know, and then we get on the phone and I'm just thinking about like, what is the game here? Because there is a game. There, there's got to be a reason for all this. And, and the only thing that makes any sense to me in all this is like, what is the technique? It's all triangulation. There's a huge fish, there's a medium fish, and there's a small fish. And the scammer pretends to be the huge fish. Leverages, triangulates the medium fish to get the small fish on the hook. And, and what's the small fish really able to... Like, what, what, what can the small fish offer? What are the commonalities between all these small fish? Well, all these small fish, like, you know, Joe and me and Carly, had, like all, like, all these small fish have connections up the chain to the bigger fish. Right. He'd begun to formulate a theory about K2. So I'm wondering, like, because they took an infusion of capital two years ago. They raised a bunch of money, and maybe they're not doing that well, and they're trying to build, like, they're trying to leverage. I, I mean, first of all, who's, like, who's actually hired them and paying them for this investigation? According to a statement that Jules Kroll made on the website, they're doing this because freelancers and creative people are being taken advantage of, and he feels like it's the, the right thing to do. But that doesn't seem like a valid reason to bankroll a massive investigation like this. You could see how crazy this sounded, and yet... I mean, listen, I might be totally just being a conspiracy theorist and all this, but who really stands to benefit at the end of all this? I would say that K2 does. If their objective is is to land some very high-profile clients and possibly even get up to those really big whales as clients, and the more nefarious theory would be they're actually, like, they are themselves scammers too. Well... This was a surprise. It was not at all where I expected this conversation to go when I asked the famous chef to call me. We were hoping for a legitimate lead to help us find the con queen. I mean, I've now met with him a bunch of times, and I've talked to so many people who've been through this. Nicole's legit, and the work she's doing is legit. She may as well, I mean, she's actually like this mom from New Jersey who's super down the rabbit hole with the rest of us. It's crazy, crazy, crazy. Right, right. It makes no sense. For me... If you think about it, like the ultimate conspiracy, like the ultimate like success of this would be, it, it's like creating the virus because you own the antivirus, you know? <laughs> I mean, I can tell you as a storyteller, I would love for that to be true. I would love that more than anything, to find out in the end that it was all like this big K2 conspiracy. Yeah. That's an amazing, like that's the ending of the Hollywood movie version, right? <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. It was all set up. It was all set up by K2. Yeah. This is where he'd landed. It's why he wouldn't talk to me on an unsecured line. And maybe it's why he keeps referencing movies to explain himself. Brian sees the whole thing as part of some global scheme, bigger than any of us can possibly understand. In the abstract, you might listen to a guy like this going to dark places and think he's nuts, but you have to put yourself in Brian's shoes, if you can. He's a guy who commands respect, who gets big jobs. He projects confidence. And then, one day, a random nobody, a faceless con artist, does this, turns him into a marionette's puppet. I mean, this scammer really understands how to take advantage of your Achilles heel. It doesn't matter who you are, just the fact that, like, that you could be, that somebody could manipulate you like that, 
that they could pull those puppet strings and get you to do exactly what they want you to do. Um, it just makes anyone feel completely insecure and, and you know, just vulnerable. Yeah, it would be great to catch this person and for him to face justice, uh, not only so that there, there's a sense of retribution, but also that we can make sense of it. Because in the end, none of it makes any fucking sense. I mean, and even as someone who wasn't scammed, but have now like been falling into the rabbit hole as a journalist, where I'm just like, this is not going to be complete until I can sit across from that person. Tell me what this is about. I need to understand why you did it. Yeah. If Brian seems a little unhinged, he's certainly not alone. We were starting to lose our perspective too, and our patience. More on that right after this. This is Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. I'm Steve Taylor your host to a horror anthology podcast where we ask you to depart from your safe perception of reality to descend with us into the frightening depths and dark corners of twisted imaginations. With carefully curated original tales of terror each week, our deepest rooted fears are brought to the forefront by a diverse cast of voice talent and masterfully eerie sound design that bring these stories to life. We'll give you tales of unnerving encounters with the occult, harrowing hauntings, and sinister seances that show just how darkness knows no bounds. Make sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Is Meghan Markle like Princess Diana? Or is she just a social climber? I was silent. Were you silent or were you silenced? Is she a breath of fresh air or a master manipulator? That's what we're going to find out on my podcast, Infamous. Apparently, ambition is a terrible, terrible thing. We'll look at what happened when two dysfunctional families came together. It's the family that I suppose she's never had. And how Meghan and Harry going Hollywood all went down. Only on the podcast, Infamous. You're listening to Camellia from Campside Media. After that conversation with Brian, we were struck by how subjective reality can be especially when you're being manipulated by a master. When we start to see truth and facts as something fluid, intangible, it makes us all really, really vulnerable. Vulnerable, the way we all are in this gig economy, doing unstable piecemeal work. At any moment, we could find ourselves lied to, halfway across the world in Jakarta, thinking we're about to get a great job. It's the perfect scam for our times in a lot of ways something that could have only happened in the era of cheap phones and internet in every pocket. So the con queen can call anyone he wants, anywhere in the world, and just say, oh, I want you to be the chef for my party. He can also find out anything he wants about people because we all put our lives online. And what really makes it a scam for our times? The authorities haven't stopped this guy. Just the way governments around the world have dropped the ball on so many things. Granted, we weren't privy to the machinations of whatever law enforcement investigation was in process. But from where we sat a year into this, the case just felt stalled. 
We've been hearing from various sources, including Nicole at K2, that the con queen's identity was known to her, which means that certainly it was also known to cops. Based on that, the natural conclusion, there's going to be an arrest. It's going to happen. But it turned out we didn't have the whole story on that. Way back at the beginning of our reporting, we heard that Nicole had identified the perpetrator. It's just that she couldn't tell us who that was. The reason? This was an active investigation, and she was now working with the FBI to solve the case. We wove together this whole narrative, and we figured out all the people who had been impersonated and and tried to find everybody who was a victim, and then we packaged it and then brought it to the FBI. This wasn't an obvious case for the Bureau to take on. The sums the con queen had been taking were just so small. But Nicole's package was proof that if you got all the victims together, you could show that the total theft was over a million dollars. This, combined with the high-profile victims in Hollywood, the Deb Snyders and Amy Pascals, finally pushed the FBI over the edge. And it's when you present it that way, along with, and here are some smoking guns and some really key pieces of evidence that are, you know, pretty much the whole thing. But it wasn't until we presented it in that way that they said, this is something here and we can do something with this and it's not going to take a ton of effort. And then the FBI does what they they do with all the tools at their disposal to to cross the finish line. Nicole's talking about tools like subpoenas and warrants and relationships with cops around the world. And she was talking to this agent who happens to work in the San Diego field office all the time. But the FBI never really tells anyone what they're up to. So while she thought an arrest was imminent, she didn't really know. And the victims were definitely worrying. It surprises me that they haven't caught him after all this time. That was Deb Snyder. She understands that the wheels of justice move slowly, but still. And all the other victims were starting to feel the same way. Remember Eddie, our fitness guru from Chapter 1? He used to teach Navy SEALs hand-to-hand combat. Those guys are still his friends. I made some phone calls to some of my old teammates about, dude, let's find out where this fucker is and let's go roll him up. Like, let's go. Like, I'm ready to go kick down fucking doors and figure this shit out. Yeah, we'd love to kick down that door. Problem is, we have to find it first. So for now, there really wasn't anything to do but wait. That's what photographer Carly Rudd was doing. I mean, after a year of being told that that they're going to catch this guy, that they know who he is, that they know who the driver is, that they know the driver's wife and where they live, and they're getting close. I've been hearing this for a year, and I keep seeing the scammer change who they're impersonating and target a new group of people. My... Hope has kind of dwindled. Obviously, I want them to catch this person. Will they? I don't know. Heather came to it from an emotional place. My philosophy slash, uh, I don't know, feelings about the whole thing from the get-go, from when it first happened to me in Jakarta, is damn them, how dare they do this to people. It has put, put a fear in me that I never used to live with, and that makes me really angry. Because everything good that you do is tainted by that little underlying fear, and it takes away the joy. Some victims tried to look at it another way, like Joe Scarnici from last week. The psychological fuck that this person put me through, put everybody through, how attentive to detail and how believable the story is, it's impressive. It literally is impressive. If I ever saw the guy face-to-face, I don't know what I would say. I would have to be like... Good work, but fuck you. Like I, I, don't I know. think he's probably being flipped there. 
I mean, these people are really hurt, and they're particularly hurt that a single mastermind is pulling off this widely publicized scam. And it feels, to them at least, like nobody's doing anything about it. I mean, it's pretty crushing to our spirits, and we're just talking to these people. One way to stop a criminal is to expose him. Sunlight, as they say, is the ultimate disinfectant. And as journalists, we have that power. We just needed to locate and unmask him. I mean, you can only hear so much of people freaking out and being upset. It just seemed bizarre that the FBI had a name and we assumed even a location for the con queen. And they were just sitting on it. While the list of victims kept getting longer and longer. We decided we couldn't keep waiting. It was time to find the con queen ourselves. We went back to K2 to ask if we could talk to Nicole again. This time we thought we'd go to her house in New Jersey, which would be a more intimate setting than the Manhattan high-rise where we first met her. Maybe she'd be more at ease and be able to give us a more realistic timetable for the con queen's arrest. From our email exchanges with K2's publicist, it sounded like Nicole was up for it. We were about to schedule a meeting. This was March 2020. Remember March 2020? China has identified the cause of the mysterious pneumonia outbreak in Wuhan city. Coronavirus, it's called. Three people have already died from this illness, which has spread to at least three other Asian countries. When we landed here in Wuhan earlier today, uh, we saw people, many of them wearing masks around the baggage carry. Just when it seemed like nothing could slow the con queen down, the coronavirus reared up and stopped the whole world in its tracks. Breaking news, the president declaring a national emergency. In New York, Governor Cuomo is banning large events in the state. COVID cases are exploding, doubling every few days in some communities. In while this, this was going on, was while the world was unraveling in front of our eyes, we kept reaching out to K2 to ask if Nicole was available. But the pandemic had disrupted everything, including K2's work. Nicole was just busy doing her job and taking care of her kids, sharing an upstairs office with her husband, who sat literally feet away. And Vanessa and I were pretty distracted too, taking care of our kids and doing our jobs and just trying to keep things together. But March turned into April and April turned into May. And Nicole just wasn't going to be able to tell us more, at least not anytime soon. That left the FBI. We knew almost certainly that the Bureau wasn't going to help us. The FBI, as a rule, just doesn't discuss active cases. But we'd also seen a clip of an agent in San Diego talking to a local news station about the scam, asking victims to come forward. So we decided to give it a shot. Maybe we'd get lucky, and they'd feel like bragging. You have reached the San Diego Division of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, Oficina de la FBI, San Diego. It was one of those crazy phone trees where you're on the phone for 20 minutes, just trying to reach a human. But finally I got one. San Diego FBI. Yeah, can I have Agent Butler, please? Uh, yes, hold please. San Diego FBI, this is Davine. Hi, Davine, it's Justine. Oh, there we go. Oh, okay. Sorry. I called like seven times. I kept pressing nine and nothing was happening. I, like, I wasn't even getting an operator. I don't know. I'm calling from a cell phone on Wi-Fi, so maybe that has something to do with it. I don't know. Anyway, I'm glad you got through. Agent Devine Butler is the public affairs coordinator for the FBI's San Diego office. She's the person you call if you have a question. And it was her office last year that set up an online portal asking for victims to share their stories. 
We don't normally confirm that we have investigations, but in this instance we have because we put out that release looking for potential victims. And unfortunately, you know, the only way that we do reveal that we have an investigation in these circumstances is when we're looking for the public's assistance. I realize the challenges of this case and why it's kind of unusual that the FBI even got involved and was able to sort of bring it close to a conclusion as it seems to be, you know, that these kind of fraud cases often don't reach the bar that you need to actually get a full investigation. And of course, we would love to participate and um, share the great work that has been done in this case. But unfortunately, we're restricted in talking about something until it's indicted. And a lot of times until it's fully adjudicated. So I know that puts Puts you in a pickle. Yep. Indictment and adjudication. That means the FBI won't talk until, at best, after the charges are brought against the con queen. The indictment. More likely, however, it means they won't talk until there's a verdict or the con queen pleads out. There's a big difference between indicted and, and adjudicated. Do you have any insight into, like, I've been hearing for a year now that an arrest was imminent. Do you, can you... Shed any light on that? No, there isn't anything that I can share with you, and I get it. Like, um, yeah, I'm sure you've been hearing, because quite honestly, the FBI and the agents that have been working on this have been diligent and pursuant, and they're working really hard on getting this case and feel very strongly that the case needs to be indicted sooner than later to prevent victims and to basically stop the madness. But, you know... our hands are tied a little bit. This guy's brazen. So I was still talking to people in March who had just gone or, or were on the way, on the verge of going. You know, it's way outside of Hollywood at this point. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, of course, <laughs> that, that he's uh, very much still at it. You know, we're pressing on the investigation as much as we can, and, we're, you know, we need to get the indictment. So I can't say anything about when it's going to happen. I just hope it's soon. Yeah, us too. But that didn't exactly instill confidence. More after the break. We're back. Once again, we're thinking about what the world might look like once we lose, stop using, or just run out of things that feel essential to our existence. What happens when we can't rely on fossil fuels anymore? Is eating meat really all that ethically dubious? How are ads shaping our impulses and what happens if they go away? So join us as we try to piece together what happens when the things we've taken for granted start to disappear. From Hyper Object Industries and Sony Music Entertainment, listen to Without wherever you get your podcasts. What if you could become stronger, more resilient, cure disease, and all you have to do is get naked in the cold and breathe? You get into ice water, and instead of, like, freaking out, you relax. It's called the Wim Hof Method, and Gwyneth Paltrow and Justin Bieber love it. I do the ice plunge because it's good for your body. But there's also a dark side. How many people have died doing the Wim Hof Method? We can override even death! Listen on the podcast Infamous. That's Infamous, playing now. So basically, it seemed unlikely that Nicole or K2 could help us. And the FBI wasn't going to give us anything either. This wasn't terribly surprising, but still, 
Vanessa was sort of outraged by it. I mean, I'm not saying I'm surprised. I've had that call with the FBI. I think we know as journalists that they never tell anybody anything. But it's just frustrating because there's a genuine bad guy who's out here doing terrible things, and he's still not caught. But here's the thing. The arrival of this virus into the world and the pandemic kicked off. These things basically froze life as we know it, causing all kinds of disruptions and disturbances, including disrupting the scammers' plans. For the first time in at least five or six years, he was no longer able to fly anyone to Jakarta. So COVID had stopped him from racking up new victims. But that didn't do much for Eddie and Heather and John and everyone else we've talked to over the course of this series. If anything, it felt like the pandemic was helping the con queen go underground and get off the authorities' radar. We decided that if everyone else was pausing this cat and mouse game, we'd go the other way. We'd step on the gas, COVID or no COVID. We had a couple clues to work from. Like when I talked to Joe Scarnici from last week, he had something pretty interesting to share. I did hear that they know who it is. I did hear that they live in the UK. The United Kingdom. This was a thing we've been hearing from victims, that the scammer wasn't even in Jakarta anymore. He was hiding out in the UK. Okay, big landmass there. So it would be good for us to narrow that down. All we heard was the UK. Which may not be as bewildering as Southeast Asia, but it's still four countries and almost 70 million people. It's not like we could just go door to door. But there was another path. I heard about this digital forensics guy. Some people might call him a hacker, but that's not really fair. And I don't think he'd like it much. His name is Ben Decker, and he comes to New York City every once in a while. So I actually met him for breakfast a while back and told him all about our story. We were at this chic restaurant in Soho and pretty much had the place to ourselves. Ben told me about his harrowing experience being a fellow at Harvard last year. It's like a, the closest thing to like a Game of Thrones working environment I've ever been in. Really? I'm like 32. I don't have a PhD or anything. Like, fuck do I know about anything, you know? But Ben does have an unusual area of expertise. His beat, really, is people who misbehave on the internet. Starting in like the counterterrorism space and now much more in kind of the disinformation, conspiracy um, space as well. Black market, global criminality has always been kind of like a big thing. So when you sent over the story. Like right in your wheelhouse? Yeah, I was like, oh my God, this is like the most fun, coolest thing I've ever heard of in my entire life. It's really hard morally to like get excited and feel giddy about hunting people down. There was this controversial video that was posted on Twitter We found the person behind it. And like this person was terrified. They weren't trying to start a national right. crisis or anything. And they just had and, no idea what they were doing. Right. right. And then, but with this, this guy's a piece of shit. And ben seemed really eager to get into it. He said he wanted to help. But then he went quiet. When I called him up to ask if he could start working, he just didn't get back to me for a while. Turns out he had COVID. Once he was finally feeling better, I tried him again. Hello? Hey, Josh, how's it going? Good, can you hear me okay? Yep, loud and clear. How, uh, how are you feeling? A bit better. It's nice to be back to not worrying about whether or not I'm gonna die. Even though he was still pretty run down, Ben was starting to do his job again. He can work from home pretty easily. He gets paid to track people down online, to find people who don't necessarily want to be found. He has a phrase for them. Different types of threat actors on the internet. Ben has spent a lot of time thinking about threat actors and seeking them out in the internet's darkest corners. Still, he couldn't help but be impressed with the con queen's procedures. The complexity of this and the efforts that have been made 
in terms of operational security are almost unlike anything I've ever seen before. This attacker has better, tighter digital security than like Russian foreign mercenaries operating in the Middle East or Africa. So it makes me think that it's someone that has some sort of background in computer science or toyed with, you know, hacking at some point. The scammers work even more than technical prowess. It showed incredible patience and care. So it's not necessarily that the tasks themselves are particularly difficult. Rather, it's the meticulous nature of maintaining and updating and everything else. The failure point for most threat actors online is laziness, or you forget to do one thing, and that one thing creates a trail of evidence. Ben had found one thing using forensic tools. He was able to trace a lot of the scammers' traffic back to the UK. This would confirm the clue we'd heard from other people, like Joe Scarnici. The pin that Ben was putting in the UK, it also revealed, perhaps, a timeline. Around, like, September 2017, when one email address used by the scammer had an IP address originating in the United Kingdom and then passing through Hong Kong before going on to the intended recipient. So, you know, at some point it's like, is this person on the run or fleeing or separating themselves from the people around them? And Ben found one more thing, a logistics company that kept showing up in a lot of the victims' documents from their trips to Jakarta. I was able to pull some of the business records and looking at this logistics company who keeps showing up, you know, all the time in relation to, you know, victim evidence, the purposes and objectives of the company that's listed in the public records covers literally every industry you could think of. How this works is that when you register a business, you describe what that business does. Like our business, Campside Media, we make podcasts. But what Ben found out about this Akshaya is that they were like in all kinds of businesses. Agriculture and fisheries and food industries and tourism and on and on and on. This company literally says it does things in every single industry in the country. That's not normal. He found a page for this Akshaya company on Instagram, where we know our scammer often hunts for victims. That account was kind of weird, too. And it led Ben to a website. There are no details. Like, I can't actually, like, necessarily book uh, my vacation right now through this website. It creates a lot more questions than answers. Right. But, you know, it's these are the types of rabbit holes that, you know, are required to, to get to the bottom of this, I think. Ben works on some grim shit in his typical projects. He describes himself reluctantly as a garbage collector on the internet. In the past, he'd worked on projects that involved huge problems, too big for any one person to solve in the short term. But this task, this hunt, it excited him. There's a personal desire to participate in the the justice process, I guess. Because at the end of the day, This person needs to be brought to justice. Fuck the what's next, go and cash your bad checks. Next week on Chameleon, the hunt intensifies. And one victim, a person we'd never intended to speak with, gives us a clue that just might crack the case wide open. 
I was the last person to meet with him, and I'm also the person who met with him the most. Cash in, cash out while you still can. Chameleon is a production of Campside Media. It's developed, created, and written by Vanessa Gregoriadis and me, Josh Dean. The executive producer is Mark McAdam. Our associate producer is Abakara Don. Fact-checking by Callie Hitchcock. Editorial support by Doug Slaywin, Natalia Winkleman, Rod Sherwood, and Ashley Ann Craigbaum. Our technical consultant is Ben Decker of Memetica. Brian, the chef, was voiced by Mark Aladef. Our theme song is Bad Checks by Houses. Sound design and additional music by Mark McAdam. Our consulting producers are Andy Horowitz at Atlas Entertainment and Charles Mastro Pietro at Circle of Confusion. The executive producers at Campside Media are me, Josh Dean, Vanessa Gregoriadis, Adam Hoff, and Matt Scher. If you enjoyed Chameleon, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps other listeners like you find the show. And make sure to subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any information about the Con Queen scam or were a victim and would like to share your story, please call 203-807-4453. You can also email us at chameleonpod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Fuck the what's next? Go and cash your bad checks. <laughs>